G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 7 Preview Edition and a bumper round of footy headed our way. Some massive games, nonetheless, Friday night. Richmond taking on the Western Bulldogs. We've got a WA Derby, being very careful to say Derby because that's how they pronounce it in those parts of Australia. And uh, another massive clash Saturday night, Brisbane taking on Port Adelaide. That should be a corker as well. Plenty of news to talk about. And uh, as usual, our wonderful, fantastic footy flashbacks. Looking forward to it all, as I say. Very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? Yeah, I'm well. Should be a great game Friday night. Great way to launch into another big weekend of footy. It's, uh, it's a cracker. We're getting to an interesting stage of the season, about a third of the way through the wheat starting to be sorted from the chaff, um, which makes me think immediately of sorting the wheat from the chaff in terms of food. Now, if you want a quick bite, a nutritious bite, an A-grade bite, there is only one place to head in Melbourne, finally, and where would that be? 144 Bridport Street. Albert Park, it's close to town and it's also close to the best burg you're going to wrap your chompers around ever. Beautiful. Andrew's Hamburgers, good old Aussie-style burgers. Grab a burger, one with the lot. I think think last time you were there, you had one with the lot, maybe without the pineapple. Is that right, Roman? No, without the egg and without the pineapple. Without the egg, because I'm allergic to egg, without the pineapple because I hate mixing sweet things with savoury things. In fact, I'll have to do a rant on that at some stage. That's always been a hobby horse of mine. I'll tell you what, though, in terms of sorting wheat from chaff, as you know, I kept talking about it, I've been looking at the inside of just about every house available for purchase in Melbourne. And I'll tell you what, I have seen some pretty flimsy renovations. You know, they gut the inside of a, an old rundown place and they throw in some crappy furnishings and they think they're going to get away with it. And they don't because I do what everyone... Have you noticed how everyone who goes in to inspect their house um, does that little thing where they tap on the walls and that's supposed to tell <laughs> them whether their house... So I now do that as a matter of pride to make it look like I know what I'm talking about when I don't. But I'll tell you what, you'll never have to do that when you go to a place that's been refurbished by West Point Properties, Friday. You've said it all. Look, I mean, you're going to, obviously now, the bar has been set very high because you know what a West Point property renovation or rebuild brings. It builds the, brings the very best in products, the best in design, and most importantly, it brings the best in eye for detail. So... Nick Spartels and his team at West Point Properties, if you're in the southeastern Melbourne and like Rowan, looking for a new domicile, 
consider West Point properties, look them up and give them a look. Go to one of their properties. Great idea. And we here at Footyology are also big on sorting the wheat from the chaff when it comes to the business of statistics. And that's why we are partners with Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis to more than 15 sports across the world. They simulate an event finding 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. And along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections, Stats Insider is also known for its full season forecasting, the likes of which now has Melbourne, a second favourite for the flag behind the Western Bulldogs. Stats Insider is also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. And you can read one of my little pieces on it right now. I've done a piece about the uh, travel woes of recent times of both West Coast and Fremantle. Everything on the site is free to use. So check them out at statsinsider.com.au. That's our plugs done. We've got a lot to get through. Let's waste no time. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, plenty of news around as per usual. And in fact, we have some breaking news. Might not be breaking by the time you listen to this, but it's breaking as we record this, because it's just been announced. And uh, that is Carlton President Mark Lajudashay has announced to the Blues members that he is stepping down as president um, after being in that role for eight years. He's been on the board for 12 years. That will all wrap up at the end of this year. His replacement in that role will be Luke Sayers, a well-regarded business leader who's been a director since 2012. Geez, uh, people serve a long time on the Carlton board. Um, eight years as president, Mark LaJudice. I don't know. I'm always a bit dubious about how we judge these things finally, but uh, do you think he's had a significant impact on the Blues in that role? Look, uh, probably not on field. People might look at that period and note that this year seems to be another sort of disappointing year mired in mediocrity, but eight years as president, 12 years on the board, I can assure you that has been hard work, a lot of, a lot of hard work, not paid for, volunteer sort of stuff. And, you know, well done to Mark say for putting in a big hard stint for the football club he loves. Uh, look, he's a decent. He's a decent guy. I, I, one thing that I always think about the Carlton board is it's just uh, it's almost like who's on the board is immaterial because the forces from outside that, i.e., the rich couple of families who aren't shy and throwing their weight around, and we're speaking about the names Pratt and Matheson, always seem to uh, dictate the direction the club takes. So this could be a real flashpoint, I think, in terms of Carlton's place in the AFL scheme of things and whether they're going to, in some respects, I think, drag themselves into the modern era because it's uh, no doubt been an absolute struggle since they won their last premiership back in 1995. Yeah, I mean, a big question is when you get a new president, as you say, with those outside influences, what does that mean for David Teague, Rowan? Well, well, people, are, the natives are starting to get pretty restless. I think it's a bit 
premature myself because I, I think they are on the right path. And I think uh, if there is issues with that list, which I, I think there perhaps is, um, I'm not sure the coach should wear complete responsibility for that. He can only work with the tools at his disposal. Of course, he helps select those tools to some degree. But again, that's one of those things that outside where we uh, really can't judge accurately. And that is the extent to which this list is the list that David Teague wants to work with. Uh, as we've seen with Collingwood's new president, Mark Corder, uh, some of these guys aren't shy to have their two bobs worth about how the side should be performing. So um, I guess, well, we'll have to see where the Blues sit at the end of a season and what sort of president Luke Sayers will be. But yeah, nearly a decade at uh, the helm of the Blues in that role. So certainly a milestone worth noting. Um, some more immediate news going on, which we should address. And uh, again, and what is becoming a long catalogue of injuries to key players. Another couple of key players going down and sidelined for extended periods. Um, the first of them we should talk about, Josh Dunkley, who has had to have a shoulder reconstruction and um, he's going to be lucky to be back at all. They're tipping three months out for him, which would slate a potential return for the very, very tail end of the home and away rounds. Uh, how significant a blow is that for the dogs, do you think? Oh, it's always going to be significant. He's had a great year after a tumultuous off-season where it looked like he was going to go to Essendon and the tug of war became pretty public. But he's really sort of slotted into this high-powered midfield by being able to go forward and kick goals. Big-bodied, very good footballer. So hard to replace, but they do have guys in the wings. Does this open the door for a Riley West maybe to play more senior football? Obviously, Mitch Wallace has found himself back playing in the reserves for Western Bulldogs. There are guys pressing their claims. So, yeah, we certainly can't rule out the fact that he's not in the team, but they've got such a deep midfield. I think they can handle it. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, we, we've talked about it virtually every week. I mean, th this is a midfield, both the quality and depth of which we've seldom, if ever, seen before. So if there's one club that can withstand injury to a key midfielder, it's the Doggies. But, yeah, look, I feel sorry for Josh. He's, uh, he's a good guy and uh, a very, very good player. And as you say, given the sort of upheaval in the off-season for him, he's, uh, he's had a terrific year to date. So... Let's hope he gets back and can make some contribution to their finals campaign. And there's actually absolutely no doubt they're going to be conducting a finals campaign. Um, the other Just significant... On that, Rowan, yeah. there, is, there is a forgotten bulldog who might be able to fill the breach later on in the season. Remember, Toby McLean did his knee last year mm. and he is due back in the next six weeks or so. So there might be a solution to the problem there. That's a good call. That is a good call. Another um, significant injury. Well, it had come a lot more significant than two of Brownlow medalists. Lockie Neal. It's been in the wars a bit uh, this year, Lockie. And uh, that was the case again last week when Brisbane played Carlton. He got in trouble with an umpire, which we'll talk about in a moment, but also got in trouble with injuries. A serious ankle injury for which 
he will require surgery and he's looking at a minimum of eight weeks on the sidelines. And you'd have to say that will have a far more significant impact on Brisbane's fortunes than even Dunkley's absence will on the Bulldogs. Yeah, correct. Mainly because of the fact that Brisbane doesn't have that same deep midfield as uh, the Bulldogs enjoy. And, you know, you only need to look at probably their most comprehensive performance of the season was against Essendon a couple of weeks ago. And that was the one week that Lockie Neal really looked like the Lockie Neal of 2019. So, you you'd have to put a big question mark against Brisbane's entire campaign now with Lockie Neal out for so long. Which makes this week's game against Port Adelaide at home so uh, critical for them. I must admit, I, I did feel the, the mojos back a bit with the Lions after that Essendon game, but not overly impressive. I didn't feel against Carlton, uh, even in Melbourne last week. And, Losing Neil makes a big difference to their um, capabilities in the midfield. No question about that. So can they cover his absence? I'm uh, trying to think of guys who could come in and play a role there. I guess Reese Matheson's a bit of a forgotten man for them. I guess he could come in and, uh, uh, with all due respect to Reese Matheson, no, he's no Lockie Neil, is he? No, yeah, we're starting to sort of plug at straws a bit and trying to guess who can come into the team. One player who can come back this week, though not a midfielder, is Noah Answorth, who's been sitting on the sidelines for a few weeks now because of a suspension earned in a VFL practice match. And the way the weeks have lined up, he's had to cool his jets. So maybe a little bit of respite there, though not necessarily in the midfield. All right. Well, injuries, they're just a recurring theme this year. I mean, they happen every year, of course, but uh, they are certainly under discussion, particularly in 2021, the amount of big names in the game who seem to have copped an injury or three. Um, We've got to talk fines as well. That's becoming a bit of a recurring theme and two fines of very differing scale. Uh, meted out by the AFL in the last few days. Uh, the first one, which was interesting, was $20,000. Um, GWS have been slugged after their football manager, Jason McCartney, had a fairly decent old crack at the umpires at halftime of the GWS Western Bulldogs game last week. There are differing accounts of how heated his rant was, whether or not he actually entered the umpire's room and the amount of expletives uttered during that spray. Nonetheless, uh, it's a bit of a no-no. Well, it's a big no-no. And $20,000 would suggest the AFL has taken a pretty dim view of it. It is a very big impost, isn't it? But are you like me? When you hear that GWS have been fined by the AFL, do you not get a part of you that says what happens there the AFL finds GWS and then writes the check out themselves and makes it out to themselves <laughs> I I'm do. not sure what the bottom line is between the AFL and GWS I do have visions of uh, Steve Hocking uh, jumping on the uh, the net banking and just doing that old uh, transfer between accounts business <laughs> that you can do I know I've been doing that a lot to prop up several of my accounts so yeah, uh, we shouldn't be so cynical, though. They are their own entity, allegedly. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty hefty fine, though, in terms of the sorts of fines 
that are dished out those days, particularly, Fanny, and I guess this is the point of interest when compared to the $1,500 fine levied on poor old Lockie Neal, I told you he's been in the wars, for touching an umpire during that Carlton game. What was your take on that one? I don't think he should have been fined at all. You know, it, it, alerting an umpire to the fact that he needed to go off for the blood rule seems a fairly genuine and honest mistake. And the fact that he touched the umpire to make his point, come on, do we need to be that persnickety? Do we need to be, you know, so so married to the law that we can't, understand that that was a fairly sort of instant reaction to what was actually quite an honest admission. In other words, I need to get off the ground by the rules of the game. Look, I'm covered in my own blood. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you say that, given that you've done a fair bit of umpiring yourself, because uh, I I agree. I'm always of that view that we're a bit too precious about these things and people just come out with the blanket you can't touch umpires well surely there has to be some sort of uh, discretion applied to the circumstances around it now if he was doing it in an aggressive sort of disagreeing sort of fashion absolutely hit him with the big fine maybe even suspend him but yeah he wasn't and I don't think you know it's sort of one of those topics where I think a lot of media commentators see a bit of a soft target, don't they? They think, well, you know, we can just get on our high horse and talk about, you can't touch umpires. Well, you know, what if, uh, what if, for example, a player feels like he's having a heart attack on the field, no one's picked up on it and he needs to get medical attention. Can he touch the umpire then to alert him uh, to the fact he needs some medical help? That's the point I'm making. Okay, that's a pretty extreme example, but... You know what I mean? Like, I, I agree with you. I mean, what he, he wasn't aggressive. His intent wasn't uh, one of disagreement about what the situation was. So I sort of applaud the AFL in this case for, um, for using that discretion, although it does sort of indicate that the standards have changed. Perhaps surprisingly, they've become sort of more lenient. I mean, when you think back to... The first thing I always think of in these sorts of instances is the Greg Williams, famous Greg Williams nine-match suspension in 1997 for touching Andrew Coates after the end of a Carlton Essendon game, and that ended up going to the courts. But you think, well, gee, if that was 20, uh, what, 24 years ago, uh, our standards on most things have sort of tightened considerably. Uh, I wonder why these sort of standards on that one have gone back the other way. Yeah, it's a good point. We were red hot on it. Who was the Bulldogs player who claimed his career? Was this Todd Curley? Todd Curley, yeah, correct. You know, he felt that his career had been almost sabotaged by an incidental coming together with an umpire. So maybe common sense prevailing. I think certainly in this case that Lockie Neal is very much a near-innocent partner. All right. Look, the other story I wanted to draw attention to, because I'm, I'm a little bit hot under the collar about this one, and it's the ongoing push, I think, from some in the media fraternity, because they seem to be the ones perpetuating it, about the game being too long in duration. Now, 
That is off the back of last Saturday's Carlton-Brisbane game, which lasted 136 minutes. One quarter went for 36 minutes and another one went for 37. And Chris Fagan uh, was asked about that. It's important to note he was asked about it. He didn't come out and make this statement off the cuff. Uh, He agreed that the game feels long at the moment. That was his quote and suggesting perhaps it needed to be shortened. I know Jared Healy's been driving this one pretty hard and a few other media types as well. Um, well, first, I've got a bit to say about this, but first off, do you think the game's too long? No, the game's 20 minutes and time on. And I'll, I'll leave it to you because I know you've taken this up with a well-written piece for footyology, but time on needs to be... What, what we're blowing the whistle for needs to be policed a little bit more rigorously. The game is still 20 minutes plus time on. So the game's not any longer. If it's taking longer to complete, then let's have a look at where we've become a little bit loose in terms of getting the play back, back on. Yeah, well, okay. The the facts are these, that we went from a 25-minute plus time on quarter to 20 minutes plus time on back in the mid-90s. And that didn't really have a a big impact on the length because they changed the methods of timekeeping. So basically, while official time was shortened, uh, the instances of time on were increased. So it sort of evened out. But the reaction to this is interesting for me because uh, whilst I think we all heard about Chris Fagan's comments, I don't reckon too much um, publicity was given to the comments of David Teague in the same game. I wonder why. Because when David Teague was asked about it, he said he felt that the shorter game length last year made the game go too quick. He said he liked the longer game. He said, uh, I like the game being longer and testing you out over time. I think the defence has opened up through fatigue and I think that's great for the fans to see that. But those comments, because they didn't support the shorter game narrative, were a lot less widely reported, I felt. So that sort of made me start thinking cynically about this. So the other thing about it is it's okay for people to say, all right, the game's too long, but, you know, give us some numbers, please. Okay, so I went and got some numbers. Now, champion data tells us the current average game length is 124 minutes, 38 seconds. That is only two minutes, 19 seconds longer than it was in 2019. Of course, last year doesn't count because we had the shortened quarters. It's also only one minute and 39 seconds longer than the average game time was all the way back in 2010. So why weren't we talking about this allegedly major issue then? The other thing is, uh, people saying the games are going longer. Well, as you alluded to then, you need to say why the games are going longer. Well, here's why. And here's the thing that's got me hot under the collar. So the push here is coming from broadcast partners. It's the bloody broadcasters who are in part responsible for the games dragging out longer. That's because last year... Um, in the COVID-affected game lengths, they were given permission to extend breaks between goals from 40 seconds to 50 seconds. Okay, fair enough. If the games are shorter, I guess you can squeeze in some more advertising time, guys. Now we're back to normal game length time, but 
the time between goals hasn't gone back to 40 seconds. It's only gone back to 45. So there you go. There's an extra five seconds per goal. Then think about all the other things that have come in that take up more time. Score reviews are one. Okay, well, they're, they're necessary, but we could do them quicker than we often do. We've got the 666 rule, which takes a little bit of extra time to set up. Then we've got the warnings given on the 666 rule when a side transgresses. We've got the recalling of wonky centre bounces and the stupidest rule in the AFL, the nomination of Ruckman, which no one can even explain anymore why we do. So here's what you do. You want a shorter duration of the game, and by that I mean start time to finish time, including all the breaks. Get rid of the Ruck nominations. Get rid of the warning for 666 uh, transgressions and just pay a free kick. This is the third season we've had it. Shouldn't sides be getting it right by now? Forget about recall bounces. Just call it the luck of the draw, like we did for all except the last five or so years of our game. Better still, get rid of the centre bounce altogether, give Ruckman an equal shot at it, and remove a bit more time that the umpire takes preening and preparing and crouching and bouncing the ball. Now, if you do that and you reduce the duration, what left have you got to complain about? Particularly when the two major reasons people throw up for the game being too long. One is fatigue. Well, wouldn't you argue that with all those extra pauses coming into the game now, they're actually getting more time to recuperate between passages of play? So I'm not sure fatigue should be um, an explanation for shortening the game length. The other one people always throw up, and it's sort of in keeping with the argument about T20 cricket and whatever is, Oh, kids today don't have the same attention span. They get bored. We need a shorter product. Well, surely if you do what I'm suggesting, get rid of all these unnecessary pauses, but still have the same length game, you pack that into a shorter period of um, duration from start to finish. Wouldn't that appeal to the kiddies with short attention spans? Less time, more action. So I can see the marketing phrase coming out now. So take all those things into consideration. I don't see how you can just blindly say the game's too long. Brilliantly reasoned. Great. I, I couldn't agree more, Rowan. And I guess you also include a far more cautious um, concussion protocol that we have now. So a lot of stoppages for that. Nobody wants to turn the clock back on that one. And there's your answer. Well, well reasoned. Well, let's see if people listen to it. Uh, I don't hold out too much hope given past um, precedents. Uh, all right, that's enough news for this week. Uh, we've got some massive games coming up in round seven. Let's preview each of them thoroughly right now. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Round seven kicks off with a massive Friday night game. Gee, I'm looking forward to this. It is the um, reigning heavyweight champion of the AFL up against, in 2021 thus far, no doubt the uh, most prominent challenger to that throne, that is the Western Bulldogs. 7.50pm at the MCG, Friday evening. Uh, what do Stats Insider say about this game? Well, a couple of stats which speak to the Bulldogs' domination of this season thus far. Their plus 17.2 inside 50 differential is easily the strongest in recorded history. Um, the only one that comes close to that are the 2012 Hawks, who had a plus 14.1 on the inside 50 differentials. 
But it's a similar story with the Bulldogs plus 27.5 contested possession edge. The previous best mark, and by quite a distance, was actually delivered by the 2016 Bulldogs, who, of course, went on to win the flag. And you'd say there's every chance that this version might end up doing similarly. Some big news, though, on the selection front, Finey. What can you tell us about that? Well, both teams, of course, impacted. The Bulldogs, no Dunkley, out for most of the year. Tim English, out with concussion protocol. And the luckless Ling Jong, who's, you know, tore that hamstring terribly, and we may not see him again. There are players waiting in the wings, though. Good performance by their VFL team on Thursday night. Lipinski could well come back. Mitch Wallace is in good form. And a number of midfielders are putting their hands up, not the least of which Riley West, Rourke Smith, and, of course, the sub from last week, Lockie McNeil, who came on and scored a couple of valuable goals. For the Tigers, the big one, concussion protocol means no Dustin Martin. He's out. And a very important player for them as well, Kane Lambert, also out injured. Who replaces important players like Martin and Lambert? I think Jack Ross comes back into the senior lineup. And could we see the debut of the big-bodied midfield midfielder, Riley Collier-Dawkins? He's a chance. Will Martin, who's already made his debut, and Patrick Nash also putting their hands up for senior selection. Look, what a game of football. And it evens itself out a bit with the omissions. Of course, Dustin Martin, huge for the Tigers, but Josh Dunkley, barely less so for the Western Bulldogs. Uh, it's a tough game to make a selection in, but I'll say this, that midfield depth is so important and the Western Bulldogs still brim with midfield talent. They've been so impressive on that score. And it's a little bit of where Richmond came unstuck against the Demons because the Demons, very strong in that department as well, eventually got on the tiger, on top of the Tigers in their game last week. So for mine, with... Forward lines that are both very functional. Aaron Norton looking great. He's just in great touch against uh, the GWS in that win. And Bruce doing his bits and bobs. The other end, Lynch and Rewald both making contributions. I lean towards the Western Bulldogs to remain undefeated and put the Tigers in a bit of a, in a, bit of a bind at three and four. Bulldogs for mine by 13 points. All right, uh, very well argued. Certainly plenty of arguments are going with the Western Bulldogs. They do have a decent record against the Tigers. Uh, they have won five, in fact, of the last seven clashes between these two clubs. Uh, what's also interesting, though, is only one of them has come at the MCG, where, of course, this game will be played. And their last five at the MCG, the Doggies, since 2018, they've lost three and won two. So they don't play the MCG quite as well as they play Marvel Stadium and a couple of other venues, you could argue. Um, look, clearly Martin and Lambert too. I mean, don't underestimate that. Massive outs of the Tigers. Uh, the other thing about Richmond is you... you this is sort of unfamiliar territory, isn't it? They've lost uh, now, what, three of the last four. Should they lose this one, it becomes four from five. That'll be officially their worst run since um, the mid-season of 2017. 
They lost four games in a row in 2017, albeit three of them by less than a kick. So you could argue even then they weren't in as bad a spot. I, as you know, though, Tiny, I just have enormous faith in this Richmond side. I think they can lift when they have to, particularly with backs against the wall in ter- terms of personnel. We've seen them do it over in Adelaide. We've seen them do it uh, in Perth a couple of times. Um, I think that this is a huge game for them. They know it's a huge game, and their record of pulling out their best when they need to is unsurpassed, I reckon, in the modern era. So form and personnel suggest the Bulldogs, but I cannot shake my faith in this premiership-winning machine. I'm going for Richmond, but by the barest of margins. I'm going for the Tigers by two points. Massive Friday night game. A massive Saturday too. Let's talk about the card on the Saturday. 1.45 start at the MCG Saturday afternoon. And this game suddenly has uh, far greater import attached to it than you might have expected at the start of a season. It is Collingwood in all sorts of bother up against Gold Coast coming off a really encouraging victory. 145 at the MCG. What does Stats Insider say about this one? Well, Gold Coast have won the tackle count in all six of their matches this season, and the Suns rank third in the league in tackle differential behind only Essendon and Richmond. As for Collingwood, the Magpies are 16th on tackle differential and 15th on the clearance differentials. According to Stats Insider Futures model, they are now just a 13.1% chance of even playing finals in 2021. That is the third worst probability in the AFL at the moment. They're in a world of pain, the Maggies, finally. Can they do anything on the selection front to uh, give themselves a bit of hope? Yeah, a little bit of optimism with Jordan Degoe available for selection after a concussion protocol and maybe Chris Main coming back into the side. Levi Greenwood concussion still can't be considered apparently. The players to go out, well, Trey Rusco did very little and Jay Rantel, just a youngster, but wasn't able to make much of an impression. Whether they pull the pin on others, they could. I don't think they will. As for the Gold Coast, you know what they say, Rowan, when you're on a good thing, stick to it. No change for mine at the Gold Coast. They put in a fantastic performance to really count for the Sydney Swans in the most emphatic of ways. As you said, a couple of weeks ago, you couldn't imagine tipping Gold Coast in this, but haven't they come with a rush, given how well they played against the Swans and how flat Collingwood are looking? Can they come to the MCG? and bring that form that was so good at Metricon Stadium with them. So can they come to the MCG and recreate that excellent form? Look, I think they can to a, to an extent, but surely Collingwood are in a position, backs against the wall, home ground, home crowd, to put in a performance that doesn't bring the spotlight onto them. Jordan Degoe, an important inclusion, I think Darcy Moore has to go back to the back line where he plays his best football and put those things in place. And I'm tipping Collingwood almost counterintuitively by nine points. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm the same. You know, you know, there are some sort of historical 
uh, records that you just you can't get over. I know, I know history is supposed to count for West, but you know there are certain things, and I must admit, Gold Coast seems to be the subject of a lot of my thoughts on this matter. But you know, Gold Coast at the MCG, Gold Coast against big established clubs away from home. It, it, I find it, regardless of present form, pretty hard to be swayed by that over the top of those historical records. And and I've got to say, this is another case for me. Why? Well, uh, Collingwood's record against the Suns is as good as anyone's. They have lost only uh, two games to the Suns. Do you remember, do you know what the last time Collingwood lost to the Suns was? It was a pretty well-known game. Was that the Ablett game? Correct. Uh, the game in which Gary Ablett did his shoulder. And at that stage, that was up at Carrara and uh, Metricon, sorry. And at that stage, uh, the Suns looked like they were going to play finals. Famously hung on to beat Collingwood, but then it all fell apart from them thereafter. And some would say has never got back together again in the seven years since. So Collingwood has won the last six meetings. The other black hole for the Suns is their record at the MCG. They've played there 14 times for just three wins. Two of those wins against a pretty hapless Melbourne. And I, the, I, I remember the other win, wasn't it against Hawthorne? Correct, it was. And that was mid-2017, which wasn't a great year for the Hawks either, truth be told. So, Do you remember who the Hawthorne villain was that day? Uh, I don't. Who was it? I'm pretty sure Caden Brand gave away a, a late 50-metre penalty that meant that Gold Coast won the game. Of course, Caden Brand was back in the game against Gold Coast last week for the Sydney Swans. Uh, yes, that's a good memory. I didn't remember that one. They've done it pretty tough. Look, I mean, that that's not discounting the quality of that win against Sydney. That was terrific. And they had a real purpose about them, which was obvious right from the opening minute. So... I reckon this is one of those games where you'll be able to tell what's going to happen probably from the tone of the first 10 or 15 minutes. Now, if Gold Coast come to play, as they say, um, and set a decent tone early, they are every chance. But I just think, well, Collingwood won five, obviously, in dire straits. Uh, can you imagine um, how the sort of uh, angst there's going to be if the Pies drop this one? Wow. Uh, we'd be back to those sort of sack the coach mid-season sort of stories, I think. So they just have to win this one. I'm pretty confident they will. I'm going to go for Collingwood by 22 points. All right, that is enough on that game. Let's talk about the second game on the Saturday agenda. Well, this game's pretty interesting too. 2.10pm Eastern Standard Time. Over in Adelaide, and it is the Crows up against the Giants. Now, some sweet and sour sauce for the Crows, courtesy of Stats Insider. First, and despite being 3-3, the Stats Insider futures model is assessing them as just an 18.2% chance of playing finals. So that's the sour. The sweet, well, it pertains to two-time All-Australian Rory Laird. Because along with Melbourne's Clayton Oliver, he's one of just two players in the league to have amassed at least 170 disposals, 30 tackles and 2,000 metres gained thus far this season. In short, he does a lot of everything. 
and has certainly been a great player for the Crows for a long while now. This one's interesting, Finey. The Giants uh, were defeated last week. Yes, they did concede a nine-goal last quarter, but they gritted it out against the Doggies pretty well for three quarters and had a couple of great performances prior to that. So this is another of those hard-to-tip games, I think. What's uh, going on with either side's projected lineup for this game? Yeah, there could be some changes here. Andrew McPherson didn't do a lot for the Adelaide Crows and sustained a rib injury. And Will Hamill, defender, rolled his ankle towards the end of the game with the Hawks. Don't expect either of them to play. And possibly small forward James Rowe hasn't done a heck of a lot lately. Didn't kick any goals against the Hawks. Into the side, Fisher Mackesy are both in line, he's in line for a return as is Josh Worrell, a pair of defenders. And Sam Berry was rested last week, so expect him to make a return. The interesting one is Tom Lynch, who was medical sub last week. We're so used to Tom Lynch being part of the team. And very unusually, he had to undergo some sort of medical check before he came on a sub. I've never seen that before. So I'm not 100% sure if he's fit to go for this game. As for the Giants, they've got their own injury concerns out of that game against the Western Bulldogs. Nick Haynes' hamstring is going to miss the trip to Adelaide, no question there. And Xavier O'Halloran hurt his shoulder. He's likely to miss out. The big in, though, should be Hogan. And there's a big chance that Hogan comes in for his first game for the GWS Giants after four goals in a lost to the Footscray team in the VFL. He was a bright spark and he could come in for Riccardi who barely touched the ball against the Bulldogs. And also expect possibly Bunteen to come back into the team and Taylor Brune, who was the medical sub, could be part of the starting 22. So some changes around the edges, except for Hogan. He's the big one for the Giants. Now, as far as the game goes, Gee, the Crows would be disappointed. When you're 15 goals straight and you've got a 30-odd point lead, you shouldn't be going down, especially not to the Hawks, who are struggling a bit this season. And you can be sure that you're not going to be 15 straight too many times in a game of football. So they let that one slip. And they just appear to me, and appear to me, after losses to Fremantle and Hawthorne, to have become a little bit vulnerable. The sort of side that at the start of the year we thought might struggle to win a lot of games. Yes, they've had a good start to the season, but now they're looking pretty mortal. It seems as though if you can keep a hold on Taylor Walker, you might be able to keep a hold on the whole team. So that'll be a focus for GWS Giants. I'm pretty impressed by not only the form of the team, but the spirit under Toby Green. And I think he's been the catalyst. He's a match winner. And I'm there's no reason he can't recreate that form at the Adelaide Oval. Giants for me, by 19. Yeah, I, I find this one as tough a call as any game this round, to be honest. The, the Giants' uh, record against Adelaide is, is reasonably even. They've had some decent performances at this venue. They've lost a couple as well. In the end, though, I, I think I, I tend to agree with you about Adelaide's form line. It's just starting to decline a bit, and albeit, you know, it's a, they're, they're lost by a kick against Hawthorne. They've kicked 15 straight. You know, like, it's, it's not too much to criticise about that performance at a difficult venue, too, in Launceston. But, 
Yeah, I don't know. Will start to sap their confidence levels a bit. Uh, I just think the Giants' form is probably a bit more solid. Sounds funny, given their very last quarter of footy played, they conceded nine goals and lost by 39 points. However, they did win the two previous games against Collingwood, the MCG, when the Pies were in better nick than they are now, I think. And a great win over Sydney, who was travelling pretty well then. And three very solid quarters against the Western Bulldogs. So you'd give them a tick for 11 of their last 12 quarters of football. That's pretty solid form for me. Um, they have, look, both their sides have finals aspirations. Why wouldn't they? It's a really important game. I, I just think GWS uh, in that sort of consistent form they have been for a three-week period now might be a bit more reliable a commodity in win-loss terms. Uh, so I agree with you on this one. I'm going for the Giants. I don't think it'll be by a lot. I'm going for GWS by eight points. All right, let's move on to the next game on the Saturday schedule. It is the Twilight game. It's at 4.35. Well, a bit of intrigue around this one. Uh, I reckon if you had asked people to tip a winner in this a month ago, you would have got vastly different responses than you'll get now. It is St Kilda up against Hawthorne, of course. I don't know why that always makes me think of the 1971 grand final. Finally, 50-year anniversary of that. Uh, hopefully not, for your sake, a similar result. Uh, but great rivals of the early 70s, these two. St Kilda, well, travelling very poorly. Hawthorne making a pretty reasonable fist of this season. Stats Insider tell us that both teams have less than a 20% chance of playing finals. That is Stats Insider's futures model, of course. As for the Saints, they've won the absolute least amount of total quarters this season of any team, going an abysmal five quarters won, 19 lost so far. As for the Hawks, last week was the first time all season they actually won the inside 50 count. So managed to get their hands on the footy a fair bit more than they had been. Gee, look at the form here, and it's a really tough call for any. Uh, what are either side considering at the selection table? Well, I think the Saints will bring Paddy Ryder in. He's been back at the club for a couple of weeks, and that will allow Marshall and Ryder, one of the real strengths of St Kilda in 2020 to reunite in 2021 for the first time. Uh, I, I expect Brad Hill not to play. There was some Achilles soreness for him and the six-day break and also his form means an opportunity for him to pause and reflect. Ryan Burns could come into the side for the Saints. He's had a couple of games in the VFL back from hamstring injury. And also Jack Bytel who came on as the sub, the medical sub, could get a run as well. And McKenzie is out with suspension. So uh, some changes around the edges, the main one, of course, being Paddy Ryder. Hawthorne, Sean Burgoyne went off with an ankle injury, replaced by Finn McGuinness. And I think that might be your change for the starting 22. As you said a few weeks ago, Certainly at the start of the season, there were different trajectories predicted for these two clubs, weren't there? Kilda expected to be a finalist. Hawthorne expected to be a struggler. Hawthorne's season has been full of merit, if not full of victories. And that 
fact that their two wins have been big come from behind, 39 points down against uh, their, their demons. And then, of course, that fair, that gets the Bombers, I should say, not the demons. Demons haven't lost a game against your Bombers in round one. And then that great come from behind win against Adelaide last week means that they're certainly full of confidence when it comes to tackling a problem within a game, whereas their opponents in Kilda in similar positions, down five goals, have just chucked the towel in. They've been subject to some huge losses. And to be, after six games, two wins with a percentage, a paltry percentage of 67%, it says it all. Something's certainly wrong at St Kilda. They're not, unfortunately, playing for each other and some ill-discipline creeping in last week as well against Port Adelaide with some 50-metre penalties that was simply uncalled for. It would be hard to tip St Kilda against the Hawks, but I am going to do so. Maybe the same sort of theory that I had for Collingwood beating the Gold Coast, and that is, on paper, pride. Surely the last chance for this team to say that they are going to have any involvement in season 2021. So, again, counterintuitively, this time St Kilda by nine points. Yeah, look, uh, I, I understand the argument. You, you keep thinking with the Saints, this is a finalist from last year. Surely at some stage it's, it's got a click for them. But one thing about Hawthorne that's really impressed me this year, particularly given they're a side we didn't expect a lot of, is their consistency. Now, yes, their, their record is 2-4, but the games they've lost, uh, but for one quarter against Melbourne, which blew the margin out to 50 points, they were pretty solid for three quarters in that game. They've lost their other games by 29 points against Richmond when the Tigers played pretty decent footy and the Hawks kept them very honest. They lost by less than a kick to Geelong and they only lost by 15 points against Fremantle in Perth. So I reckon they've been pretty worthy. You know, They've been a pretty honest sort of side this year, the Hawks. I reckon they'll get a bit of uh, extra confidence out of that win uh, coming from behind the way they did against Adelaide as well. So I'm going for the Hawks here. I, I think uh, in terms of pure talent, the Saints definitely have the edge. But as you said, it's the nature of those whopping defeats that really worries you. It makes you think that these problems are attitudinal as much as uh, injury-inspired. Can they recover all that ground that quickly? I'm not sure they can. So I'm going for Hawthorne here. Not by a lot. I'll go for the Hawks by 12 points. That's Saturday Twilight. That brings us to two massive games on Saturday evening. Well, one phrase comes to mind when thinking about this game, and it is ball terror. I reckon this is going to be a ripper. It is between Brisbane and Port Adelaide at the Gabba, 7.25pm Eastern Standard Time. Of course, these two teams... Uh, finishing top four, winning their qualifying finals, going straight through the preliminary and then both losing their preliminary finals. But you can argue these were the two best performed sides of last season. Uh, what a Stats Insider tells about this one. Well, this will be just the second game that Lockie Neal has missed in seven years of football. How's that for durability? Be a mighty big hole to fill, especially as the Lions were already dead last in the competition for disposals, just 342 touches per game. 
The loss of the Brownlow medalist means the Lions now have just a 27% chance of making the top four for a third straight season. Speaking of that top four, the Power, a 59.2% chance of making the top four according to the futures model. And just on disposals, only the Bulldogs are generating more touches of the footy than Port Adelaide's 400 per game. Some pretty big news coming out of selection for either club, Finey. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, bad news, of course, for the Brisbane Lions. No Lockie Neal. We know that that's the big story of the week. But don't forget that Darcy Gardner also, due to concussion protocol, cannot play this week. And that's a huge loss. We know how important he is structurally and even performance-wise to the defence of the Brisbane Lions. Who takes his place? Does Tom Fullerton come back for height and structure? Possibly. Had a very good game in the VFL. And also Tom Berry can come back into the side as well. The other look would be Reese Matheson and possibly Noah Answorth. As for Port Adelaide, good news for Port Adelaide, Sam Powell Pepper had a delayed start to the season with personal, personal issues, has been back in the sandfall. And he's knocking the door down in the sandful last week. 34 possessions, eight clearances, a goal. I think he's back in the team. The player to miss out, Boyd Woodcock. Unlucky in that big win against the Saints. Well, you know what? Ball terror it is. But with those statistics, and I thank Stats Insider for pointing out the big differential in ball-getting ability, take Lockie Neal out of one team, put Sam Powell Pepper in the other side, and the venue almost becomes irrelevant, doesn't it, Rowan? I mean, this is a midfield Brisbane Lions that desperately needs their sergeant major at the tiller. Uh, they just don't get enough of the ball where they're playing a team who loves touching it and are in cherry ripe form. I've got to go for Port Adelaide. and I'm almost doing it convincingly by 31 points. Yeah, well, that would be a, a reasonably sizable margin given how good both these two are. But I've got to say, I'm inclined to agree with you at least about the verdict. It's interesting. I mean, obviously the focus on Neil, but I reckon Darcy Gardner could be a pretty major loss for them too because that Port Adelaide forward setup is just looking sensational at the moment with Dixon, uh, with Georgiades and with Marshall, all mobile and uh, key sort of position-type goal kickers. Orazio Fantasia looking sharper and sharper. Robbie Gray, et cetera, et cetera. There's just so many possibilities. So I think Gardner's a pretty big loss for Brisbane. Uh, Brisbane has had the wood over port in recent times. They've won the last three meetings. However, there's an interesting one here. It is Port's recent record at the Gabba. Now, um, the thing you have to take into account here is that it's not all against Brisbane. Of course, last year a lot of uh, neutral games being played at the venue. But uh, granted that Port beat Collingwood, Melbourne and Carlton at the Gabba last year, uh, they nonetheless have five wins from their last seven appearances at the venue. That's another thing to take into account, isn't it? There's a perhaps greater familiarity with the Gabba for away side. So I'm factoring that one in as well. You just can't tip against Port Adelaide at the moment. They look so good. They've got all bases covered. We've talked about the forward line. Their defence, much better with Aaliyah Aaliyah, and that's not the only reason. Their midfield soldiers all standing up and playing great footy. Lockie Neal, a huge loss to Brisbane. 
just can't argue a strong enough case for the Lions this time. I don't think it'll be as decisive as 31 points, but I'm prepared to say Port Adelaide by 16 points. That's the first of our Saturday night games. And the other one is pretty interesting as well. 7.25 Eastern Standard Time at the SCG. Sydney taking on Geelong. Of course, last week on Footy Flashbacks, we had that memorable 2005 semi-final with Nick Davis playing the hero. What a memorable evening that was. The Cats, I wonder if they still get jittery about that even 16 years down the track, but always a fascinating matchup and a little bit unpredictable on occasions too. Stats Insider tell us that uh, while the AFL world made a lot of fuss about Sydney's scorching start to the season, they might have overlooked a few warning signs, particularly in defence. So far, the Swans rank fourth last in terms of allowing opposition inside 50 entries to be converted into scoring shots while they are the only team currently in the top eight to have already conceded at least 500 points. So that defence, a little bit leaky. A quick one on the Cats. They've gone a staggering plus 256 in the disposal differential. So they get a lot of the footy, but they're also plus 58 for inside 50s over the last two games. And uh, a lot of that coming out of last week's absolute shellacking of West Coast. The Swans form not as impressive. They've lost their last two now uh, by a squeak against GWS, but very decisively against Cold Coast last week. Uh, what are either side looking at here in selection terms, Flaney? Mark O'Connor's got a hamstring injury for the Cats. He's unlikely to play. Jake Collin-Jasney came off with a sore knee and was replaced by Jordan Clark as sub. So I'm expecting Jordan Clark to hold his place in the team. And the other spot to go to, I'm going to say Charlie Constable because there was a practice match against the AFL Academy on Saturday for the Cats and he was best on ground. As for Sydney, their woes, especially big man woes, are just getting worse and worse. Sam Reid unavailable with a calf injury. Huge out for them. And he's going to be joined on the sidelines by George Hewitt. Concussion protocol, cannot play. And Nick Blakey, who got a really bad corky and couldn't move in the second half, is unlikely to play as well. Doesn't that leave them short of tall men and really struggling? Logan McDonald could come back into the side. Now, Tom McCartan was out with a hamstring awareness problem last week. I don't expect him to play. Hamstrings don't normally clear up in a week. Other players that could come into the side, Sam Gray had 31 in the VFL and Ryan Clark, likewise, had 30 possessions. But doesn't that leave them perilously short when you consider no Hickey, who was starring, no Franklin, now no Sam Reid, uh, uh, a youngster in Logan McDonald called back after some pretty poor form in the AFL the last couple of weeks. No McCartan. That just has them way too short to play any team, let alone a forward line that has Hawkins and Cameron looking forward for their next assignment. It's going to be a tough ask at home for the SCG, one that I don't think they can fulfil. Geelong by 27 for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, gee, the Cats looked good last week. Uh, admittedly, West Coast offered token opposition, but 
it was the way they did it. Look, we've talked about this a bit. You know, everyone calls them a, a slow team and a, a dour team, but they are capable of flicking a switch and turning on a real burst in the way that the Swans used to themselves going back to that mid-2000 period. Uh, Ten goals in a quarter last week against the Eagles. And I reckon they might be inspired to go a little more quickly with the footy on the smaller ground as well. And this is an important point. The SCG is a venue they handle pretty well. They have won four of their last five appearances there. Uh, Yes, there were some neutral games played on this ground last year, but the Cats played one of them and it was a pretty significant result. They beat Brisbane, who were uh, obviously in pretty good form at that point, by 27 points. And again, that game was one in which they sort of um, slugged it out for a half and then went bang with an explosive third quarter. So I just reckon this the sort of short nature of the goal-to-goal setup at the SCG, it just is more likely to make the Cats go a bit quicker and a bit more direct with the footy. And uh, as last week proved, they're not short of firepower when the ball does get forward. Mitch Duncan being used forward. It's an interesting one. He bobbed up with four goals. Maybe they've discovered a uh, another goal-kicking option in that sort of medium-tall sense. So uh, the Sydney injury count, pretty catastrophic, as you pointed out. It just all says to me um, a Geelong victory. I think their form is better. Uh, they don't have the injuries the Swans have. Uh, I think the Swans can pull out of this slump, but um, with the lack of quality personnel on hand to do so. I don't think it's going to be happening this week. I'm going for the Cats here by 26 points. That is the Saturday matches. Let's turn our attention to Sunday. Well, this one is a a contrasting tale for both the combatants. Uh, It's Thankfully, at the venue it was originally scheduled at, that is Blundstone Arena in Hobart, speaking about North Melbourne taking on Melbourne Sunday afternoon, 1.10pm Eastern Standard Time. Of course, uh, the coronavirus, meaning there was a fair chance at one stage this game would be shifted. Thankfully, that isn't the case. Uh, Stats Insider tell us there are just so many positives to pick for Melbourne at the moment. But the most extraordinary, perhaps, is that they're allowing opponents to generate a scoring shot on just 29.2% of inside 50 entries. The league average is 39.8%. So they are a really, really well-drilled defence. And uh, they look at it at the moment. May and Lever combining beautifully. Another amazing stat about the Demons finding pertains to their last quarters. This season, they've won all six final stanzas while posting a ludicrous 196.4% in the process. North Melbourne, meanwhile, their fourth quarter percentage so far this season is the rather less grand 34.9%. Does it all go well for the Roos, Finey? Is there anything they can aspire to at selection to give them some hope? By the same token... Uh, I wouldn't have thought Melbourne would want to be mucking around with the 22 or 23, rather, that was very impressive against the Tigers on Anzac Eve. Well, as for North Melbourne, they can bring back Aaron Hall into the side after concussion protocol. He's been pretty good this year. And take your pick, 
who misses out might be an unlucky youngster like Will Phillips. For Melbourne, here's an opportunity. Yeah, no changes on the cards. But what better venue to bring back, or not bring back, to make a debut for their North Melbourne recruit, Ben Brown. Of course, Ben Brown, a Tasmanian. And any time he played for North Melbourne down in Hobart, you saw the family there in support. So the perfect place for Brown to make his debut for Melbourne. Could come into the team for Jake Melksham, who's been pretty handy, but could be unlucky and miss out as Melbourne look to integrate not just Brown, but Weedman back into the team over the next few weeks. I expect Ben Brown to make his debut. Not much can be said about this game. These are two teams experiencing very different periods in their history. Melbourne, ambitions, belief is high that they could break this interminable drought since 1964 and actually win a premiership. This team is performing wonderfully well, as we said, with Brown and Wiedemann to come back in just adds to the excitement, whereas North Melbourne are transitional, they're young, and at the moment they're incapable of playing out four quarters. Your fourth quarter stat bore that out. So I've got no problems picking the Demons down in Tasmania. By how much becomes the question. I'm going to go Melbourne by 59 points. Uh, 59 points. Yeah, look, that could be, that might not be stretching it much at all. I'll tell you, the intriguing thing about this for me is I think Melbourne and North Melbourne at uh, Blundstone Arena. And I've got this image of a lot of close finishes. So I looked it up. That is exactly the case. Melbourne hasn't won at Belreve Oval in three attempts. What do you think the combined losing margin of those three defeats is? I reckon about 11 points. 14 points. They lost uh, by five points in 2016 just four points in 2017 and five points again in 2019. So for me, fourth time lucky for the Demons. Uh, they've almost jagged a win down here when they weren't as good and North were a lot better than they are now. So absolutely, they're going to be doing it this time. I'm a bit more conservative with my margins, but I'm still prepared to make this one pretty decisive. I'm going for the Demons by 42 points. That is the first game on Sunday afternoon. Uh, the second one is a clash of traditional rivals. Well, a storied rivalry, this one, uh, had some very, very memorable clashes over the years, particularly in big finals. Not that either of these sides have been playing and certainly not winning too many finals in the modern era. I'm speaking, of course, about Essendon and Carlton, who meet with Essendon as the home team at the MCG Sunday afternoon, 3.20pm. The Bombers coming off that big Anzac Day win over the Magpies. Carlton uh, struggled and held their own for a little while, but eventually went down to Brisbane. Need a win desperately, the Blues. Uh, the Bombers, well, they want to keep winning as well. So what can Stats Insider tell us about this storied rivalry? Well, Essendon, they're becoming a bit of a tackling machine. They had 30 more tackles than Collingwood in that Anzac Day win while still winning the disposal count by 19. In fact, Essendon is in pretty rare territory at the moment from a tackling perspective, Fidey. They're plus 18 on the tackle differentials. 
That is far and away the highest recorded figure in history. Of the last 11 teams to have the league's best tackle differential, seven have made finals, five have made the grand final, and three have won the premiership. Ooh, that sounds good. I'm pretty happy with that stat. Here's one for the Blues from Stats Insider. Harry Mackay has been responsible for a whopping 29.3% of Carlton's entire score this season. That's the biggest single-player contribution since Jack Rewalt's 29.5% for Richmond in 2010. The bad news there is Richmond were a pretty ordinary side in 2010. They're particularly interesting stats, those ones. Finally, you might have a comment on them after you tell us what either side's considering at the selection table. Well, for the Bombers, they welcome back their best defender, Jordan Ridley. Again, concussion protocol allows him back into the side. Aaron Francis turned his ankle against Collingwood and he's unlikely to play. So it seems to be an obvious in and out there. Carlton, do they make any changes? There's certainly some players who'd be under the pump and they could bring Will Setterfield in. He could come in potentially for Matthew Cottrell, who didn't do a lot in the loss against Brisbane. Just sort of uh, around the edges changes there for the Blues if they make that one. Yeah, it's great to hear that Essendon are tackling dynamos. And you know what? I was pretty impressed by one of those tackling dynamos in the game against Collingwood. Isn't Will Snelling an improved footballer? A lot of tackles up forward. I think that's his stock in trade. But he also hit the scoreboard with a couple of goals and gets his hands on the ball as well vastly improved footballer for mine and a really important part of the Essendon lineup. That midfield was led brilliantly by Darcy Parrish, of course, winning the medal, but also has players that can lift. McGrath can go better, no doubt about it, as can Zach Merritt. I thought that the combination, Ruckman, bringing Phillips into the side worked well. Peter Wright was able to course it havoc down forward. And as long as they can stop that big scorer, Harry Mackay, because that really has become Carlton's be-all and end-all up forward. Levi Casbold having a moderate season, not hitting the scoreboard. I think Essendon win the game. So focus on Mackay, a little lift in the midfield for some highly regarded players in McGrath and Merritt, and the points are Essendon's. I think they can do those things and win the game by 19 points. I think one interesting issue for the Bombers will be uh, how they use Kale Hooker because um, they're not an overly tall defence and you now uh, look like losing Aaron Francis out of that as well. So Jordan Ridley coming back, he's not a bona fide tall one. Do they have the height and strength to be able to handle Harry Mackay and a Casbold or whoever else Carlton plonks down there? So that's an interesting one to consider for them. Uh, you know, we talk about this clash always being unpredictable and it has a tendency to go against form. Um, and I looked up the records and it absolutely bears that out. So here's the record from an Essendon perspective against Carlton since 2014. It reads like this, win, draw, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss. There you go. It means, oh, win. it means that Essendon is due for a win. Uh, of course, last year's meeting uh, at the MCG before the Hubs 
came into effect. Uh, Carlton memorably hanging on by one point in that game. The tackling thing is significant, though, I think, Finey, because Carlton's real Achilles heel for me this season has been their skill level with the football. Um, so if you're butchering the footy, even under limited amounts of pressure, what are you going to do with it when the other side is exerting plenty of tackle pressure? That is a real issue for the Blues. I certainly give them every chance of winning the game because of the reasons I stated before. But there was a pretty... What impressed me most about Essendon's Anzac Day win was it was a real solid win. It wasn't... Uh, Essendon's victories in recent times have tended to come off the back of a burst or you know, a remarkable turnaround. This was just four pretty solid quarters of footy after a shocking start, incidentally, five minutes. But... After that, they played really solid footy and they gritted their teeth too after Collingwood hit the front early in the last quarter. I think they'll get a lot of confidence out of that. I think it's a good call on Snelling too. His work can go a bit unappreciated, but in a midfield that isn't necessarily huge on physical size and strength, I think he plays a pretty important role and he did hit the scoreboard last week, a couple of important goals. So... You know, I'm tempted to go for the Blues, almost a bit of reverse psychology on my part, admittedly. But I think Essendon's win on Anzac Day is good enough to inspire me to have confidence that they can win this one as well. I'm going for the Bombers, not by hope, though. I'm going for Essendon by eight points, which leaves one game on the round seven card, and it's a derby derby. You know what the funniest part of that is? I didn't say that deliberately. It is my East Coast pronunciation. So apologies to all our West Australian uh, listeners. I will say derby from here in. Nonetheless, it's a pretty big game. 4.40pm Eastern Standard Time. Uh, given it's so big, we'll give the Perth time as well. 2.40pm Western Australian Time. West Coast taking on Fremantle. Uh, what a Stats Insider tell us about the Derby. I nearly did it again. We signposted last week how worrisome some of West Coast defensive numbers were, along with the fact that they have a pretty horrible away record. Uh, I wrote about that this week and incurred the wrath of many West Coast supporters. Uh, Geelong feasting upon them down at the Cattery last week. As for Frio... Well, the Dockers have a top five points against defence for a second season in a row, while only the Bulldogs are conceding less than Frio's 130 opposition contested touches per game. So they're pretty solid defensively, the Dockers, and that will give them plenty of hope of reversing a fair old run of outs against their despised local opposition Eagles with plenty of personnel problems at the moment. So many good players out injured for them. Finally, can they bank on any of them coming back this week? Yes, they can. Expect Shannon Hearn to return. Definitely Josh Kennedy back in the side. And our man, Petrick Shelley. Jesus, quick. Should be back in the team. Uh, missing out injury will mean that there's no Jeremy McGovern. I think that they might excuse Nathan Vardy. I don't think the two-ruck setup has been particularly successful. And we know that Oscar Allen can go into the ruck with great effect. So I can't see a reason for playing Vardy. And Zach Langdon 
who hasn't had a lot of the ball in the last couple of weeks also to make way. As for Fremantle, Brennan Cox, well, they need their tall defenders, but he suffered an ankle injury in the win over North Melbourne. He's doubtful. He could be replaced. The only fit defender with any height on his side is the oddly named Taylor Duman. So Duman could get a game. Do they persist with Josh Tracy? Centre-half forward has barely touched the ball, really. Maybe Sam Sturt takes his position. Well, master and apprentice. Traditionally, it's been West Coast the master and Fremantle the apprentice in the derby clashes. And heading into this season, you would have thought no reason to recalibrate. But the fact is that at the moment, especially after that performance by West Coast down at GMHBA Stadium, and Fremantle's turnabout in fortune in recent weeks, maybe the roles have reversed. We know this much, that the Fremantle midfield is ticking along beautifully. Fife getting the ball, Mundy using the ball, plenty of support from others in that, in that lineup that really have meant that at the moment, Fremantle, and I'm wrapped with the return of Lobb into the side, Sarong, Maybe not at his absolute cherry best last year, of course, winning the Rising Star, still getting plenty of the ball, means that around the stoppages, they're pretty damn strong. Now, the key for them is converting up forward. And Tabiner, he's had a good season. He needs support. Does he get enough support? At the moment, not. But maybe, just maybe, the big stage is where we see Michael Walters return to scintillating form. He's been back in the team for two or three weeks now. We haven't seen it. Could he turn it on? As the West Coast, they get the big trio back together, Darling, Allen and Kennedy, and that could be enough to sway things in their favour. But does does their midfield, Sons, Log, Luke Shuey, have enough ball-winning ability? Gee, it's a line ball one for me. I'm going to defer to the old masters in this. West Coast by three points simply because the big three are back forward and that should cause headaches for a slightly injury-ridden Fremantle defence. Now, I've got to say, I'm surprised at the odds for this game. I was just having a look and the Eagles are paying $1.68 at the moment, Fremantle $2.19. So there's a lot of faith in West Coast. Um, and a lot of that, I reckon, would come down to their record, and and it's pretty significant. Ten, derby, did it again. Ten derby victories in a row for the Eagles over their hated opposition. Fremantle's last victory over West Coast all the way back in 2015. Of course, that was a year Fremantle finished on top of the ladder. West Coast ended up playing in a grand final, so they were both very strong. Not nearly at the same levels these days, but both still have aspirations to doing something in September. Frio need to win this if they are to have genuine finals legitimacy, I reckon. This is an opponent that, in terms of personnel, they can knock over and they should have enough confidence from their record at the moment to do so. I don't think they will, though. I've just uh, I've got a lot of faith in the Eagles, and yes, they've got a lot of personnel out. But I, I don't know, I keep channeling memories of last season when they had a huge amount of injuries and still managed to 
bowl over St Kilda, finally. You'd remember that. It was uh, probably the Eagles' most significant win for some time, actually, since they won the Premiership in 2018. I reckon they can channel the memories of that and some of these uh, younger parts of the machine really make a name for themselves. And in Perth, you don't make a much bigger name for yourself than performing well in a derby clash. So uh, like you, really tough one to tip. Form would suggest Fremantle, but I am going for the master as well in relative to the apprentice. I am going for West Coast by 10 points. Slightly bigger margin, but both narrow margins nonetheless. That is round seven previewed. We have one segment left in this show, and it's our favourite. My favourite pump-up music in the world, that little theme, uh, gets you in that nostalgic frame of mind. Well, we've got uh, a couple of special clips for fans of the Fitzroy Football Club today. Of course, um, far too much focus on their decline as a footy club and not enough, I think, on when they were a really good side in the late 70s and early 1980s. With a bit of luck, might have won not just one flag, but a couple. They had some seriously good footy talent running around at that time. So, finally, my choice of uh, flashback for this week is a famous final. Unfortunately, Lions fans, it's not one you won. Um, It is the 1981 first semi-final, Collingwood and Fitzroy. If you haven't seen this, jump on YouTube and have a look. I challenge you to find many better and more exciting finals than this one. The atmosphere, absolutely electric. I'll tell you one thing I noticed about this game too, when you play it back, is that TV networks covering the footy, they had the crowds mic'd up at appropriate levels. Unlike today, where for some reason they decided to fade them out in the background, probably so you can hear the self-indulgent commentary more but the crowd noise is such a big part of it and uh wow it was loud in this game let me tell you uh Fitzroy had beaten Essendon in the elimination final Collingwood had lost to Geelong in the qualifying final this then was a knockout and the Pies were looking like doing the knocking out early in the piece they were dominant early and in fact by early in the third quarter had racked up a 45 point lead Done and dusted? Well, no, because Fitzroy came charging back with some fantastic footy of their own. Collingwood only 14 points up by the final change and a pulsating last quarter of footy. 12 goals kicked, Fitzroy kicking seven of them. There's some big names in this, all those Collingwood greats of the early 80s. Uh, Peter Dacos, of course, we see his sons going around now. Funnily enough, last week, my flashback, the hero was Nick Davis. Well, one of the heroes of this flashback is his old man, Craig Davis. Very prominent in some big moments in this pulsating final quarter. We've got a nice little package of big moments from that last term now. It's uh, about three and a half minutes, listen. Uh, So it's lengthy, but hold on to your hats because this is exciting stuff. Check it out. Now Davis, though, 
Taking it the wrong way. Still on true centre wing position. Another bounce. Oh, Alexander went for the professional trip. Great effort, Davis. Over half forward towards Kink. But it's Taylor. Now Dacos. Goal! The Woods are alive again. Dacos, second goal has brought Collingwood within two points. 80 minutes into this final term. Alexander's lit up like a lighthouse. Drew Parrish, Fitzroy into attack. Rendell, he's got it, got his hand to it. Quinlan grabs it from him. It's an acute angle as he kicks it back. And he's goal. Bernie Quinlan's second goal. He came back from the horrors today. Now Michael Taylor, the left foot snap. And it's a mark to Collingwood. Davis, their most reliable shot for goal. He's on a tight angle. Ninth mark to Craig Davis coming back after that hamstring injury. 20 minutes gone in the last quarter, and what a seesawing struggle this is. He's only going to be 10 metres or so out when he kicks. Could run round onto the left boot quite conceivably. Smith's in position to try and block him off if he does. There he is. Davis runs around, fires. Yes! semi-final. Parrish doing it well. Dropping back is Poynton. Off the pack. Poynton. Lewis. Nobody there for Collingwood. Laurie fires. It's a goal. Davis. Support from Tony Shaw. Doesn't need it. Down towards Brewer. Serafini wearing him like a glove. Brewer best to recover. Over the top to Dacos. Yes, he's going to Dacos, and Dacos is marked about 40 metres out from goal. Big scoring chance. He's better with his snapshots than set shots, but this must represent Collingwood's last chance of perhaps stealing it. Dacos with two goals, 10 points the difference. It's a goal, OK. It's four points, and this set of bounce again crucial for both teams. And they'd love him to kick a fourth. 28 minutes into the last quarter of the first semi-final. Fitzroy by half a kick. Here goes Kink. Well tackled. Barham out wide. Past Olsen. Made him stop. Backed up by Ray Shaw. Pass to Brewer. Was it push? Yes, it was. It's Davis. He's a long, long way out. But he can kick the ball very long distances. He's kicked three goals. Big torpedo, swinging back, won't make it. Brewer! Collingwood are in front! Ross Brewer, the hero, that's his third. The Magpies are in front of the 29-minute mark by two points. Picked up by Taylor, Fitzroy going forward into the centre, picking a half volley. No, he got there in time and takes the saving mark for Collingwood. Billy Pickin being told to hurry up by umpire Dye. That's his sixth mark. Going short. Oh, it's a, not a safe one, but raving off the Packers Olsen. On towards Barham. Barham a long kick into the pocket. There it is. Collingwood by a point. Collingwood by a point. The final score. Collingwood 19-19, 133. In one of the best first semi-finals ever seen. Fitzroy going down gallantly in defeat. 19-18, 132. What a game it was and what an unlikely hero for the Magpies in Ross Brewer who 
really made his name as a Melbourne footballer and bobbed up for the Magpies very late to win them that game. Now, I was actually at that game, Rowan, oh. somewhat surprisingly. Okay. But I had a couple of mates who were very keen Fitzroy supporters, one of them, David Cooper, and he had tickets for the game. And you know what? It was such an oddity to have Fitzroy in the finals. You know, Collingwood, of course, had been in the last couple of grand finals and was everybody's boo boys. If you didn't love them, you hated them. Whereas for me, I just love the idea of different teams playing in finals and maybe making it to a grand final. And I've got to, I've got to say, my memory is that I was as keen a Fitzroy supporter that day as I ever was barracking for St Kilda and left that game absolutely heartbroken. So I can only imagine how Fitzroy supporters felt, mate. Well, I've got a crowd story too, Finey, but it, not from that final, of course. Back in the uh, 70s up to 1983 was the last year they did this. Two finals were played simultaneously in the first two weeks, one at the MCG, one at VFL Park. So whilst that classic was going on, I was out at Waverley for the second semi-final between Carlton and Geelong. Uh, it wasn't a bad game, but Carlton ended up getting right on top, ended up winning by about 40-odd points. But in the last 10 minutes or so, with the result beyond doubt, uh, I'll never forget this. Me and my two mates, one of them had quite a large radio, which he used to take with him. We, of course, tuned into the other game being called, I think it was on the ABC. And we ended up with a crowd of about 50 people clustered around this radio, totally ignoring the end of the second semi-final between the Blues and the Cats and just glued to this call of the Collingwood-Fitzroy game. Exciting stuff, but, gee, the, the lines were stiff. Um, as they were stiff a couple of years later, when many would argue they were the best-performed team in the competition. And I think that's the throw you need, Finey, to give us your flashback. Well, interestingly, my flashback is Rowan Connolly. What? <laughs> so I, I was, you know how we end up down the rabbit hole on YouTube and and Google searches looking for up football stuff? I live in the rabbit hole, yes. So I found this fantastic article from 2015 written by yourself, end of an era for footy at the Junction Oval. And it coincided with Cricket Victoria making the commitment to the Junction Oval being their home and refurbishments guaranteeing that there was no more football there. So the last footballing tenants at the Junction Oval was, in fact, amateur side Old Melburnians. But uh-huh. you picked the point in time when Old Melburnians were playing their last ever game there, meaning it was the last game of football at the Junction Oval for the foreseeable future. And that has been the case ever since. And it was time for you to pause and reflect as to what role the Junction Oval had played in football history. Of course, home ground to St Kilda from 1897 to 1965 when they moved to Moorabbin and then inhabited predominantly by Fitzroy from that point onwards until they departed there just in the sort of early to mid-80s. And from that point on, a little bit of VFA and a whole lot of VAFA. But you also picked your five most memorable moments from that particular ground, and they make for interesting reading. Do you remember them at all? 
Um, you know, I don't actually remember writing the piece, but I, off the top of my head, I reckon one of them definitely would have been the uh 1976 vfa grand final which we've also had on this segment was that one Absolutely. of them yep. uh, i reckon i probably had carl dittrich's vfl debut spot on 1963 round one against melbourne St Kilda defeated melbourne with the arrival of the blonde bombshell uh Oh, yeah, I reckon I, I can think of another one, but I'll be stealing your thunder because it's your flashback. So uh, what do you tell, tell me what the other ones were and then the one that you've picked. Okay, so the other ones were Fred Fanning's 18 goals for Melbourne oh. and Kilda. Oh, of course, YouTube clips a bit thin on the ground for that one, unfortunately. Yeah, thank goodness. And the 1944 grand final, Fitzroy's last ever premiership as Fitzroy. And they defeated Richmond at the Junction Oval. Ah, yes, which leaves one obvious candidate and uh, a very proud day for Fitzroy fans. Tell us about it. An amazing game. Coming into this round 13 clash in 1983, North Melbourne sat atop the league ladder. That's right. They were number one on the VFL ladder, playing a pretty powerful Fitzroy at the Junction Oval. And what was to follow was one of the great thrashings in the history of football. Of course, I'm talking about this magnificent win by Fitzroy over North Melbourne to the tune of 150 points. 21 goals in the second half for the Roys. Matt Rendell kicked eight. Mickey Conlon kicked seven. And a host of other champions getting in with multiple goals. Let's pick up the play during the first quarter, as Fitzroy set up this absolute thrashing. Three minutes into the first quarter, and the centre bounce again. Dempsey getting up high and knocking it down, looking for Wayne Schimmelbush, but kicked away by Osmond, putting Fitzroy into attack, and there he is, the flea, Gary Wilson, reading the play beautifully, marking within range of goal, 45 metres out directly in front. Fitzroy, a very assured side, playing with lots of confidence early in the game. Long kick by Wilson, straight. And the Lions, two goals, one. North Melbourne, yet to score. Tremendous start by the Lions as Dempsey and uh, Rendell tangle. Dempsey gets it nicely to Hodgman. McCann from the side, did everything right, except take the mark. Burnt the clearing kick. Dempsey again, fisted away by his teammate Glendini. Carlson against the Holden tackle. Side bottom the spoil was beautifully done to Parrish. Back to Ruse. Wilson again. Superb opening from Fitzroy. A big match and probably bigger for the Lions than it is for their opponents because they lost last week. There's talk that they're starting to struggle. And they're out to prove uh, the talkers wrong with actions on the field. Five-minute mark in the first quarter. Fitzroy starting well. 3-1-19. North Melbourne yet to score. Ruck deal again. Dempsey is there. Whistle going now. A side bottom. Punches the ball away strongly. And a free kick to Fitzroy right in the centre to be taken here by Leon Harris. Harris moving the ball quickly now. Out towards two Fitzroy players. The North Melbourne defence very loose. An easy mark taken by Les Parrish. The Fitzroy players everywhere. Unattended on the forward line. 
gee, I bet the runner comes out in a moment as Rendell takes an easy mark. No opposition to that mark whatsoever. And with Fitzroy having three goals on the board already, Rendell has an opportunity to make it 4-1. North struggling with no scorers yet. Rendell, 35 metres out. Long kick. Swinging in. Yes. Lions 4-1-19. And North Melbourne yet to open its account. Gee, they had a good side finally. They were terrific to watch, of course, Robert Walls coaching them. Just a, a quick word on North Melbourne. One thing I always remember about this, um, and of course, they finished on top of the season on top of the ladder too, the Roos, but went out in straight sets with two finals hammerings. First to Hawthorne in the second semi final by 40 points, and then Essendon smashed them in the preliminary final by 86 points. And they had to, it was a weird season for a side finishing on top. So they get beaten by 150 points by the Lions. Just three weeks prior to that, they themselves had beaten Carlton, who were still a pretty decent side in the reigning premiers, by 111 points at Arden Street. So capable of some great highs and lows, that North Melbourne side. But what a great day for Fitzroy. And were the goals shared around eight Goals to Matt Rendell, the ruckman slash forward. He just had a picnic. He wasn't the only one, though. Bernie Quinlan, seven goals to Bernie Quinlan and seven goals to the tank, Mick Conlon. So there you go, 22 goals between those three forwards. Ross Thornton even bobbed in, uh, bobbed up for four goals. And Lee Carlson kicked three goals. Um, the quarter-by-quarter quarter breakdown, eight goals to the Lions in that first term, five in the second, 11 in the third quarter, and another 10 in the last quarter. The last half was 21 goals to two. <laughs> A pretty decisive win in front of just on 20,000 people at a great venue to watch footy, the Junction Oval. And a great, proud foot, and uh, sadly lost to AFL football. They're still president, president. They're still present in the amateur competition, of course, Fitzroy. And uh, hopefully, Lions fans enjoyed this little trip down memory lane as we did, Finey. Gee, I love that segment. All right, that takes us out from this week's Footyology Round 7 preview. A uh, quick thank you to our sponsors, please, Finey. A big thank you to Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Brilliant burgers. Go down and visit either, either of the Greggs. Tell them you're a fan of the show, and I'm sure they'll look after you. And don't forget West Point Properties, also in the southeast in Melbourne. Renovations or rebuilds, Nick Spartel's West Point Properties, the very best. And don't forget Stats Insider, proud partner of the Footyology podcast. Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader, providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. All their stuff is free to use. Check it out at statsinsider.com.au. That's it from us this week. Uh, please support us either at the ACAST supporter page or on our Patreon page, uh, links available to that at footyology.com.au where there's plenty of great reading this week and not just about the football. Uh, we'll see you again on Sunday to wrap up a big round seven. Stay tuned for that one. Don't forget Footyology final sign Friday evening 
Uh, should be a particularly good show this one after a ripping Friday night clash between Richmond and the Western Bulldogs. We'll talk to you then.